Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. This is Kathy from Chicago. Get exclusive podcasts and more at patreon.com slash partners in crime media, just like I do. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts, TV. And this week, we Netflix and chill. First, his conviction for killing a Boston detective 20 years ago was overturned. Can he make the case that dirty cops set him up? We'll discuss the documentary Trial 4. Then, a Kentucky orphan battles her own demons on her quest to beat the Soviets and become the greatest chess player in the world. We'll talk about The Queen's Gambit. Join me to get that done and more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist and guy whose body makes funny noises, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Y'all ready for this? <laughs> Girl. We're ready to rumble. Along with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and certified cat lady, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Good evening. And in one more week, Rebecca... You might be invited to the virtual graduation ceremony for Cat Detective School. <laughs> <laughs> oh, can we make that a Patreon exclusive? Well, you guys yes. know um, this is, we're not actually, we don't have a podcast next week. So now we're not taping next week because it's Thanksgiving oh, week. okay. So we have bandwidth if it's like on a Wednesday night or some <laughs> shit. Uh, well, the night before Thanksgiving, maybe not so convenient. The, the, but the night before Thanksgiving? That's right. Finally, our That's when all of- the best pet detectives are graduating. <laughs> Finally, well, they're yes. saving the turkeys. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, host of the Strange Arrivals podcast about UFOs, and our Patreon book club host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hi, Rebecca. I'm preparing myself emotionally for what's about to happen. Yeah, it's going to be a smackdown. So, Laura Bricker, question to you real quick before we start. So are you doing like finals right now in pet detective school? (laughs) No, I'm in my last unit of study right now, which is, um, I thought it was a few weeks ago, but now my last unit is actually forensics and predators. Mm. So Mm. that's what I'm in right now. So I'm looking at some gruesome pictures, learning about using like luminol to detect blood and some other things and watching lots of videos of wild animals attacking cats. 
Does this mean you're going to have to buy Luminol? Um, I'm possibly. I'm kind of interested in that. And and like a few weeks ago, I learned about this like giant listening device that I could order. Um, so there's a lot of tools of the trade that I'm learning about. Sounds like tools for an eminent divorce, if you ask me. <laughs> so this is one of those jobs that's actually going to cost you a lot of money, right? Yeah, I don't think I'm going to make any money. I'm, I'm basically a, a volunteer at this point. Yeah. We well, you know that giant listening device is going to be used on Will. That's true. That's true. It totally is. Yeah. Although I don't know if I want to know what I'm going to find out if I do that. Well, don't bring the luminol. I have I have another follow up question, <laughs> and I'm sorry to like take up so much of this of our time talking about this, but you know how in like real life forensics there are like bullshit non science things get that get used in court, like um, ballistics evidence and like teeth bite marks, my bite marks, and like uh, blood splatter evidence stuff that's been basically disproved but still gets used in sometimes sometimes in court. What is the bullshit non-fry tested equivalent of that in pet detectivery? All of it. <laughs> All of it. Well, no, actually the listening device, because in the first week I was told the listening device would help me hear cats that were trapped. Yeah. And then in week seven, I learned, well, actually, that just makes the owners feel better because they really feel like we're doing something. <laughs> but we've only found like one cat using the listening device. And oh. I was like... What? So it's no. the equivalent of a cat witch doctor. Yes. I was about to say, yeah. it's like those those ghost house investigations. Yes. It's like a shaman. <laughs> Except not a, like a real shaman, like one of those fake California shamans. Ghost adventures. Yeah, yeah. Ghost adventures. Oh my God, ghost adventures. That ghost show. facers. Oh my God. What's that? Is it ghost adventures that the kids watch? Yeah. Uh, with Ghost Zach Bagans, yes, who's basically the Payne Lindsay of TV, who like goes into houses, <laughs> paranormal. Yeah, basically he goes into houses and like, no offense, Payne. I know he doesn't listen to this podcast, but this guy is the Payne Lindsay of TV. He goes into houses with all of these like all this equipment and all this whole crew, and they capture audio, and then later they're like, on this audio you can clearly hear the say hear the ghost say. Get out. And they play the audio and it sounds like. <laughs> let's, let's, let's play it again in slow motion, shall we? <laughs> Clearly it says get out. I have chills. <laughs> I bet that Toby is a big believer in the paranormal search for ghosts and haunted buildings. Aren't you, Toby? 100%. <laughs> Everywhere we, I look. We don't call you the captain of woke cynicism for nothing. Nope. I'm not cynical about ghosts. You believe in ghosts? No, I don't actually believe in <laughs> <laughs> Season two of Strange Arrivals. I, yeah. I couldn't I couldn't keep up the facade. <laughs> Ghost town. <laughs> All right. Let's start the podcast, shall we? Let's do it. Leading off. We have a report of a Boston officer who's been shot... I'm inclined to identify him at this point, uh, but we do know that he suffered a gunshot wound to the face. Uh, we understand that the officer is uh, is dead at this time, and uh, there is a uh, an unconfirmed uh, report that his firearm is missing. In 2015, Sean Ellis won the right to a new trial more than 20 years after being convicted of murdering a Boston cop in front of a Walgreens. What was at first believed to be an execution-style slaying of Detective John Mulligan shifted once Ellis mentioned to police that he bought diapers at that store on the night of the killing. They asked me again. I took them through it. They asked me again. I took, I, I took them through it. But each time that I took them through it, like it's like they was getting madder and madder. Well, the defense didn't know at Ellis's first three trials was Mulligan was a dirty cop. 
His partners in narcotics took over the homicide case, providing evidence and witnesses that conveniently kept scrutiny away from their own illegal activity. For my fourth trial, I want to be vindicated. I want to be exonerated. But I won't be the only one that's on trial. The Boston police will be on trial. In Netflix's Trial 4, Ellis and his defense attorney prepare to go back to court and prove he was railroaded to quickly close a high-profile case that would have exposed police corruption. With the whole system stacked against him, can Ellis win exoneration for a crime he says he didn't commit? Spoiler alert, we are going to totally fucking spoil Trial 4. So if you want to <laughs> remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes for our thumbs-up or thumbs down review. All right. Laura Bricker, question for you. Yes. In trial four, we are introduced to a defense attorney named Rosemary Scarpaccio. Listen, we have a defendant, we have a crime, we've got corrupt cops, we've got boss, we've got the whole thing. Well, let's just go straight to Rosemary Scarpaccio, who I think might be exactly what we need in 2020 to fill that Rosemary Scarpaccio-shaped hole in our lives. Laura Mm -hmm. Bricker, what did you think about Rosemary Scarpaccio? I I think if I ever get in trouble for anything, I am calling her. And I I loved her. Oh, my God. She was such a badass advocate for her clients. Like when she had that one detective on the stand and he was trying to give her the runaround and she just kept after him. And she's like, yeah, we have some history. I know what he's up to. It became clear from co-defendants that that man sitting at the table there, Sean Ellis, was responsible for the murder of John Mulligan. You want to stop that? Were you there that night, Detective Keeler? I was there. I examined Detective Were you there when the shots were fired? No, but... So you have no idea who fired those shots, do you? Oh, I have have a very good idea of who fired those shots. You weren't there, Detective, were you? No, ma'am. Okay, so you have no idea what happened because you weren't there. You only know what was reported to you after the fact. She was amazing. So, you know, we have had other defense attorneys that we have been like, these are great. But she's like a pit bull. Like, she is not going to stop. And she just kept on going. And she had heart. Like, she really cared about Sean and his case. And, I, you know, I loved when she was having her little Italian dinner with her family. And she's like, I need some wine. I'm like... Yes, you do, Rosemary. No, she was fucking awesome. And the fact that, like, then you learned about her history and she's grown up in the projects and you hear about, you know, she understands where the clients were coming from. And she's, I mean, I would use the word scrappy to describe kind of the way that she just continued to pursue becoming a lawyer and didn't let go. Hmm. Kevin, thoughts on Rosemary Scarpaggio? Oh, I, I, I also love that scene when she was doing the cross-examination. I think she is, you know, the kind of defense attorney every everybody would want to have. And she's gotten results. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the idea that she uh, did not back down in the face of years and years of stonewalling mm-hmm. by the Boston police and the, uh, the, the city and, you know, the other entities that were withholding documents, a, a lot of the credit for... The conviction being overturned belongs to her. Yeah. Now, if you look at her website, which I have. Okay. I'm going to paraphrase. I don't have it open in front of me right now. But she is a criminal defense attorney, makes no bones about it. And her website is like, I will take your case to trial and I will win. That's literally what her website is. Like, she makes no bones about it. She's like, you guilty? Hire me. I will take your case. <laughs> we to have try. a couple of those around here. Well, she's basically like, <laughs> I litigate. I, I litigate cases. I will defend you. Like, that is her bag. Uh, Toby, what did you think of Rosemary? I want to give you a chance to weigh in on this 
larger than life character in this documentary. I'll just point out, she was driving back from Springfield at the end when she got that call. She was covering the whole state. Yeah. She was yeah. two hours away from Boston. She was defending maybe somebody in your family, right? Could have been. <laughs> I know who, too. <laughs> Toby, what are your thoughts on Rosemary? Yeah, I liked her. Uh, she, I, I think Kevin and, and Laura have already kind of talked about sort of her great scene, which is which is really kind of putting this police detective on the defensive in, in what's a pretty, you know, hostile back and forth between the two of them. And when they talk to, um, I'm not gonna remember the guy's name, but but there's a, a retired police officer who seemed like he was pretty high up in the ranks, who, who they talked to quite a bit over the course of the series. Like he clearly, he has nothing but disdain for her. Like he thinks, this, you know, she's trying to get her name in the papers and stuff. When I was watching her, like that's the kind of lawyer I would like to have rather than like Kathleen Zellner and like her wacky like experiments and, you know, tromping around. Rosemary seems like she kind of, you know, she works the system. You know, she she files she files her uh, her FOIA requests and you know waits them out and follows up and you know eventually justice grinds and and she gets what she wants. You know, one of the interesting of, of many interesting things about this documentary is watching her kind of go about her business, knowing that this is one of probably a number of cases she's got sort of juggling at the same time, although probably the most high-profile one. I want to talk a little bit about the the background to this case, because Sean Ellis finds himself at the center of this murder case of a cop, who, by the way, does look a little bit like Crazy Toby. Just going to throw it out there. One of our <laughs> listeners pointed that out, and I'm like, oh, I wish you hadn't said that. Anyway, if Toby wore a patrolman's cap and a black and white photo. But it really is like fiction, uh, this case is like it could be like it's like the departed, right, Kevin? Like it's it's not even like a real. It, it feels the, so. The crime itself is really interesting. I, I will tell you without giving away where I'm going that this is one of the few documentaries where I actually wanted to watch it again. In particular, episode one where they lay out the crime because it's so interesting, sort of the way it it unfolds. But right, it's a it's a cop who's on a a private detail, so he's essentially off duty but on duty. We're looking for, tr- hoping there's no trouble at Walgreens uh, at three in the morning when people are buying diapers, and he's either asleep in the car or he's relaxing because somebody's giving him a blowjob because maybe his pants <laughs> were around his ankles. We don't know. If the prosecution's theory is that Sean and Terry Patterson, his friend who was also arrested, wanted to murder this cop for his gun. First of all, I how do you? He's not in uniform, and he's not in a patrol car. He's not in a patrol car. Right. How do you know he's a cop? How do you know he has a gun? Right. And then the idea that the window is cracked just this much, and so you're going to stick your hand all the way in to put the gun right up to his face, as opposed to their original theory, which was somebody sat in the car next to him and shot him close up in the face, execution right. style. Listen, I'm not a ballistics expert. Yeah. But I have fired a handgun once in my life, 
And I can tell you right now where those cartridges landed, like the person was sitting in the car. <laughs> like they, the person was sitting, like, like it's so obvious. There's a cartridge to the right of the passenger seat and there's cartridges behind the passenger seat. And Kevin, you know from firing gun that like the cartridge goes up. Yeah, it bounces all around. Yeah, go, yeah. yeah but it, yeah. Like, I have slow motion footage of us shooting, like shooting a handgun and it flies over your shoulder or it flies off to the right. It doesn't generally, well, it can bounce anyway, yeah. especially in a closed surface, but it doesn't usually fly forward. Right. It might careen forward or something like that, you know, bounce off of stuff. But everything was to the passenger side. Yeah. Toby, are you surprised by the brazen extent of the corruption of just the officers we hear about in this documentary? So we have Mulligan. We have that guy Brazzle. Uh, the third guy is... Walter Mitty. Yes. What's his actual... Robinson. Robinson, yeah. Acera and Brazel and this guy. And their corruption, it was not even like... It wasn't subtle. It wasn't like, hey, once in a while, I'm going to do a drug bust and take a couple hundred bucks. Like, they were shaking It was like people. the shield. They were shaking people down. They were running their own uh, businesses. The guy owned like eight, 18 apartments and drove around like a sports car. I love the investigation where they ranked all the money found at the different precincts. And 90% of the money, the drug bust, there was money. And 95% of this one, there's only 20% of the drug bust, there was money. (laughs) That's a a sort of sub-theme of this is like more good reporting by the Boston Globe. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, were you, you're probably not surprised. What did you think of the extent to which this little gang of cops was corrupt? Well, I think you you were right when you said before that it it seems like fiction. Like it does seem like a Dennis Lehane novel. You know, it's kind of a almost a cliche. It's like if you rob like a drug dealer, who are they gonna who are they gonna go to? And then when you're a cop yourself, that makes it doubly unlikely that they're gonna do anything about it. So yeah, I mean I, I guess it was just a matter of they didn't think that they could be touched, right? And and for the most part, they couldn't. I don't think unless this had happened. You know, it didn't seem like there was anything that was going to necessarily stop them. Like, even that Boston Globe report didn't really lead to anything. And they still get defended by by other cops who are on the, on the force at the time as being not particularly dirty. Toby, as I recall, the U.S. attorney read the, the Boston Globe article and he said, yeah, that they got, they were like, oh, that's interesting. When I picked up my copy of the Boston Globe and they, it was a spotlight series on uh, detectives Walter Robinson and detectives Kenneth Sarah, that was quite, uh, quite eye-opening to us. We also heard from another cop who was in the anti-corruption unit, which is not internal affairs. He said, and I think it was, this was the truest thing that they, in the, in the, any cop said in the whole thing was, we know who the dirty cops are. Yeah. So it's like, well, I don't know, Mulligan, he was never approved. It's like, man, he's got like the most amount of complaints against him. Of course you know he's dirty. Yeah. You you know he's dirty. At the very least, he's a fucking terrible cop. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think the other, well, yeah, and the euphemisms they use for him at the beginning. Yeah. His nickname was Plain View because whenever he would file reports about making an arrest, the drugs were in plain view, the gun was in plain view, everything was in plain view. Because if it's in plain view, you don't have to get a warrant. That was among his friends, you know, those was the cops called him. And then uh, one of them had to retire and whatever. Although I never, whatever happened to Brazel? He seems like, oh, he turned, he turned evidence. Yeah, he got immunity. It's all coming back to me now. Um, <laughs> so, 
Yeah. So I, I thought it, it did. It, re- it read like fiction. You know, the one thing I would say that you were talking about before is like, how would they know that he was a cop? Because, you know, he wasn't in a vehicle and he wasn't. It, it seemed like he was like a known guy, hmm. right, in, right? In the neighborhood and that he's getting, you know, girls to come see him. And, you know, I assume he's probably getting drugs delivered to him or mm-hmm. whatever. So. But how would Sean Ellis know? You know, I, I, I mean, obviously, I don't know. There's a, yeah, there's a lot of fucked up things. Yeah. You know, there's a funny like one of the things they do is that is that they do kind of hint at the fact they don't even hint at it, but it's a very small part of it is that Sean, you know, he was he was dealing drugs on, on the street before he got arrested. So it's I, I don't think he was like necessarily naive, you know, it was obviously fairly near where he lived. That's where they're going to get diapers. Laura, your thoughts on the corrupt cops in this documentary. What struck me about this is that some things never change because this was what, back in like 93? Yep. They're double dipping, you know, they're running this scheme. And I'm like, wasn't it like only like maybe two or three years ago that we had the mass state police doing the exact same thing? And they had to shut down like an entire barracks somewhere in Massachusetts. So I think that in this case, what enraged me about the corrupt cops was the fact that they're all still freaking covering for each other. Yes. So I was like yelling at that freaking old guy cop, who the one who was like the head homicide <laughs> yeah. detective. The white, like white Mr. hair guy. Mr. Punch yeah, sorry, Kevin, the old Irish detective guy. That's fine. I was like, fuck him. I was so angry at him when I was watching this because he's like, you know, like everything's great. Everything's fine. He's still guilty. And like, yeah, Mulligan may have been this, but we didn't do anything wrong. It was a clean case. They call it a clean arrest, a clean. Clean as the snow. Mulligan's case is as clean as the new snow. That's how clean their case is. There's not one issue with it. I mean, I supervised their case. There's no women involved. There's no conspiracy. There's no corruption angle. There is nothing. They were brought on charges. Like, they were found out. And yet, they're still carrying the company line of, like, oh, yeah, it's fine. I was just like, every time that guy came. And the other guy, the other one that had, like, the glasses that was in a hotel room. Also very punchable. Yes. So, anyway. (laughs) Uh, Kevin, I don't want to, like, belabor our attention on the victim in this case, who by all, like, accounts was a giant piece of shit. I also think he was a pedophile. What do you think? You mean a phoebophile? Let's not get technical, shall we? But like, define our terms. There is another theory of the crime, which is first of all, we hear from lots of people that he liked young young, teen girls, young teen girls, and there's another theory of the crime that he was killed by another cop whose daughter he was messing with, and that other cop apparently told somebody. (laughs) And there's this whole other theory of the case. What do you think of this idea that a Mulligan had a lot going on just besides being a piece of shit cop who's shaking people down. He was also like a piece of shit person. And that there was this other theory of the crime that was never explored, probably because the other suspect was a cop, right? Yeah. Well, yes, or it wasn't explored because Sean Ellis was the perfect patsy to take the fall on this. And that was what they wanted to do. I think that, of course, that kind of information should have been disclosed to the defense. And it's part of the reason why the conviction was overturned. I think ultimately, you know, I'm not feel I'm not feeling very strongly that it's 
uh, was it One Eye Captain Jack or whatever the guy's the oh, yeah. custodian's name was, or this cop, only because I feel like uh, Mulligan's service weapon is the key to the whole mystery. Yeah. Because, you know, if there's a theory that, no, it wasn't Ellison, it wasn't these dirty cops, it was a serial killer who just came along, you know, third party, that could be out there except for the fact that whoever had the gun, whoever took the gun from the car, planted it across the street from Sean's Very house. Very clearly planted it. And, of course, that could also be the serial killer. Oh, if this guy's in the paper. Okay, we're going to put this, I'm going to drop this by his house. But how did that tip get to the cops? Right. Right? It came through this triumvirate of filthy cops that, like, okay, they don't have any suspects. All of a sudden, one of the dirty cops comes up with a suspect, and they don't have they don't have a cell phone. But all of a sudden, one of the dirty cops finds a cell phone, and they don't. I mean, it's like these dirty cops, narcotics cops. Remember, we didn't even point out the fact they're not homicide detectives. Right? They're his partners in narcotics that everybody already knows is dirty, and they're, they've decided to step up this investigation and start coming up with eyewitnesses and stuff like that. That's the key, obviously. Right. And if they're going to say, well, the girlfriend's fingerprint was on the, the gun, I, I never believed the fingerprint evidence. Well, it didn't. It ended up not matching. It ended up. Right. Remember, they said it ended up not, not even matching Terry Peterson's fingerprints on the, on the door. Yeah, years later. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a question for you, Kevin. This yeah. is like an aside. We've had a lot of debates in our household about how Jay knew where the car was exactly, in the right. in the yeah. serial case. Does, That's exactly what does I was thinking. this not like make you believe a little bit? The cops knew where the car was, and they told Jay where to help them find it. Well, without getting back into serial, I I would just say that I don't same kind that, of cops. But though. I don't know the motive for withholding that information and giving it to a right to because they had a suspect and they wanted to wrap it quickly, and that's how dirty cops work. They want to wrap it quickly, so they make it happen. That is the whole point of okay, this fucking documentary. We can talk about that another time. <laughs> we can talk, this, no, let's talk about trial for. Let's talk about Sean Ellis. It's a crime we haven't started talking yeah, about. Yeah, and we yet. need to talk about like the huge theme of this documentary, which is a huge theme of a lot of things that we talk about. But in Boston, it is particularly salient the theme of race and how the criminal justice system is just different for people who are black. The cops are all white. Toby, you pointed out in your notes that Sean Ellis is practically the only person in this whole film that's black. Yeah. I mean, the cops are white. The lawyers are white. The judges are white. His friend who writes the op-ed piece that gets a lot of attention, she's white. The only other black person who plays much of a role is the the new DA is black. And I think that may kind of complicate things a little bit. I, I think the racial optics probably did not help Sean in that particular case. But yeah, so I mean he's he's basically navigating or not navigating a system that's run, you know, part and parcel by white people. And you know, you can draw your own conclusions about about what that means for his experience and and, and the outcomes. Now, Laura, Sean Ellis obviously was a big participant in the making of this film. He's in it. He's sort of one of the central figures in it. He gives a lot of interviews. You sort of see him going about his life. He sort of, um, after he finally gets out of prison on bail, it's on bail, right, Kevin? He's uh, now working with the Innocence Project. He has a job at a nonprofit. I'm curious, just what are your general impressions of Sean Ellis? Well, you know, I like in the beginning that 
we get the window into the fact that he was a stutterer when he was younger. We obviously see his hat stutter with his his nickname there. So I think that we, you know, see somebody who's very involved in his case in an appropriate way. You know, I dealt with defense clients who were perhaps not involved in a way that he was, that that weren't supporting the attorney or the investigators. And he's, you know, polite, he's involved, he's engaged. And, you know, he wants to do the right thing. And I think, you know, we see him out in the community and we see him at his job and we see him interacting with his partner and his mother and buying, you know, the house that they're going to move into. And I just... You know, I think he comes across as a very sympathetic and compelling character because, you know, when you see him living his life, you see why that woman is writing the op-ed because he does not come across as somebody that committed this crime. I think Mm. when you actually see him out and about. Yeah. I mean, let's be real. Like a lot of awful people are also railroaded and wrongfully convicted. Sean Ellis is not one of those awful people. Sean Ellis is a good person. And he and I have to say there is something about his his manner of speaking. The stutter in particular gives him a very sort of childlike quality, even though he's not childlike in any other way that immediately like you feel something for him that other documentaries like this. I mean, we didn't hear from Curtis Flowers and in the dark at all until until after he finally got bail. Right. So he was a character in the background that we knew almost nothing about, never heard from, never heard his voice. Kevin, it makes a difference when you meet the defendant right at the start and you are doing a ride along with them and and participating in their defense. Right. Yeah. I mean, part of what is one of the things about this documentary is it had both a, a, a feel about uh, of um, in the dark mm-hmm. because we're going on to trial four now, but also it shares like some uh, DNA with the staircase. Yes, it does. It actually shares some DNA with the well, staircase. somebody in the production. So Lestrade, yeah. who is the executive producer of this, was the director of the staircase. Right, Jean Xavier Lestrade. This was one I realized that you know. This case was done, you know, and the, there was either a trial or there was some some finality to the case. And I was praying that I would not find out before it was done, before I was done watching it. And I hadn't felt that way since the staircase. I was like, please. I asked you. I said, you know what happened, right? I looked it up. I couldn't and I said, do not tell me. Do not tell me. Do not tell me. <laughs> um, yeah, so it has it, – it does have uh, some of that. And Sean, you know, immediately becomes uh, relatable and – you know, while someone's demeanor is not indicative of their actual ability to commit a violent crime or not or not, yeah. it certainly doesn't seem like this is the guy that would kill a cop randomly for his gun. You know, it just, uh, you know, Rosemary uh, said it when she met him. It just didn't seem like that was who this guy was. Right. And so, you know, I think uh, an audience you know, we're not members of a jury. We're not prosecutors trying to make a, a prosecuting decision. I think as an audience, we can say, yeah, this isn't the guy. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, where the documentary turns. It gets a little bit into politics and the sort of racial 
history of the city of Boston, which is widely believed to be one of the most racist cities in the United States, something, a feeling that many of us share uh, who live in proximity to Boston as well. And there is sort of a political history there about how the cops have been dominated by, you know, white Irish people and the the political machine has been dominated by white Irish people and the, the prosecutorial machine has been dominated by white people. And then we kind of get into a DA race that is happening during this appeal. And we get introduced to several of the candidates. And I think we're supposed to, like, realize that whoever gets elected will determine the outcome of Sean Ellis's fate. Toby, what did you think about this documentary's turn into the politics of criminal justice, that the DA is an elected position in a city that is systemically racist and that whoever gets elected, old school liberal or and we, knew, we knew it was going to be a Democrat, right, who was going to be elected. But whoever got elected was going to you know, determine the outcome of Sean's case. That was a very interesting turn, I thought. Yeah, I thought so, too. It, it went on a little bit longer than I would have chosen to go on. But it is. It does. It's a clever way of bringing in some context into what's going on and also into how Boston may or may not be changing. And I do think it kind of comes down to it. And another weird thing, I, I kept trying to figure out what was going on. They kept showing, so there's like six candidates and, but they only show three of them ever talking. The other three are never, are just like stage dressing, but it, it does seem to come down to sort of an old school, sort of more conservative Democrat, the guy who the outgoing DA is sort of handpicked or, this woman who's got who's like is sort of the new face of Boston. She's got an Irish dad and a and her mom's from the Barbados and you know, so she's mixed race. She's the new black Irish, Toby Ball. I'm the product of a second generation Irish man, Vietnam veteran, my mother's first generation from Barbados. This is the new black Irish. Get used to it. And she's much more liberal. And I think the idea you're supposed to be getting is that for Sean's future, you really want her to win. Like she seems to be the one who's most likely to uh, look favorably on his case. Um, so it, they, they do a good job of getting you kind of in her corner. They do spend quite a bit of time on the race and not always in ways that I thought were like particularly interesting, but be that as it may, I can see why they did it. I just wish they'd done it for a little bit less time. Kevin? Yeah, I 100% agree. I, I feel like that episode was was not necessary. I think a lot of that ground could have been covered in 10 minutes of something else. It's important because, as you guys know, that the DA holds a lot of power, and ultimately her election changes the course of Sean Ellis's case. But, you know, following her moving into her house and stuff like that. I that just, was surprising I, to me. Were you surprised they had that access? I was. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I was th- very staircase. I think if she's like, <laughs> I'm the new DA and like, oh, we're a documentarian team doing stuff on Sean Ellis. Well, come on in. It's like, she's like I, wait till I throw the book at him. Like, that's just not going to happen. Right. right. Yes. I'm already emotionally invested in everybody else. I, actually, I don't need a new character at the seventh episode to come in and like, oh, right now I'm really care about you. I don't. It almost felt like they were making a parallel film and they decided to include some of that footage in this film. Yeah. That was the one sort of diversion. Yeah. But, the, but the thing, the way that it comes into play, uh, Lara, is that she wins and Rachel wins, Rachel Rollins. And the outgoing DA, the outgoing administration, so she basically says she plans to take a look at the case. 
they decide to dismiss the charges in the case, but they do it in such a way that they basically say, like, we know he did it, but we can't prove it. Of all the people in all the world who might have killed John Mulligan, only they were present at the time and place he was killed by their own admission, supported by eyewitnesses in physical evidence. What did you think of that, Laura? It pissed me off because it was like clear that they were doing that because they knew that if somebody else, I mean, I felt like if she came in, she probably would have dismissed the case and she probably would have been a little bit more like there's some questions about the guilt in this case. The police were corrupt. This gave them the opportunity to continue holding the line that the police investigation was done correctly that the corrupt police didn't mess up this investigation and that Sean Ellis was guilty. So it was like one of these things I felt like horrible because it's like he's out and then that's great. So because like, can you imagine if he had gotten out on bail and and had to go back to jail, how awful that would have been. So he's out, but he has this cloud hanging over him because they've tainted his reputation by holding on to this. He's guilty, but we're dismissing the case. I'm like, you're so foolish. Like I was, I was just like, No. (laughs) Guilty of being a cop killer, which is not nothing to be accused of being guilty of. Yeah. Well, Laura, you know what I would have done? Of course, you know, these cops, it's their last fuck you because they know that the whole thing is we have to do this now because... Yeah, she's just going to completely dump the case and maybe exonerate him. This is our only way of getting one last lick in. That's a whole PR move. And if I were Rosemary, I would have pointed out the fact that the following day, all this discovery material was supposed to come out. Even though you don't really know what's going in, I would have said to the press, well, they dropped the case because tomorrow they were supposed to give me also all these documents that they've been hiding for 20 years. And I know it would have proven that every cop in Boston was in on this and the heavens would fall and blah, blah, blah. And two can play that game. Yeah. So I just want to talk a little bit about the look, though, because one of the interesting things that happens that the documentary doesn't linger on, but I certainly noticed it. So we meet Rachel Rollins, the brand new DA. She's moving into her house. That chief of police guy, was he the chief of police? Commissioner of police is helping her. And we're sort of getting the sense that she's going to look at the case. She's going to be very liberal. That same police commissioner is at that press conference throwing Sean Ellis under the bus. And then we see Rachel Rollins in an interview. I want to say, like, pussyfooting around the issue she's not willing to just like say they were wrong to do that she's like well i may look at it whatever you can tell the politics of the job have already taken hold a little bit like her passionate progressive nature already had some of the edges smoothed off of it that quickly after being elected because you sort of see this allegiance she had with the commissioner and then you see you know what i mean i thought that was interesting and and sad in in some ways um uh, but yeah, so just a quick round table. Uh, does anyone besides me think that another cop killed <laughs> killed Mulligan? I, I would go that way. Yeah. Another cop or at least somebody he screwed over in, the, in his uh, corruption as a cop? Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. What do you think, Lara? Yeah, no, I think it was somebody he screwed over, definitely. Because, I mean, we haven't even gotten into like the best. I, I love the defense investigator who found that witness, Misty, the woman who was like, uh, yeah, I was kind of glad because I was sick of giving him blowjobs. That was. Yes. <laughs> Were you surprised that he was murdered? I wasn't surprised he was murdered. He wasn't, like I said, he wasn't very liked. And he was always, somebody always thought he was setting them up. I mean, clearly this guy was just a jerk. So I, I think that he made enough enemies that certainly Sean Ellis buying Pampers was not the person that did this. 
All right. I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out Trial 4 on Netflix? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Laura Bricker, what do you think? I'm going to go thumbs up. You know, I love when we watch something that kind of happens in our own backyard and, you know, seeing the Boston Globe involved in this, thinking of obviously Spotlight and, and you know, that whole series, and then seeing the reporters that were involved in the police corruption here. And this is, uh, you know, you've got a great defense attorney. You've got a very sympathetic defendant. Um, you've got a lot of great characters. It did drag on a little bit in the middle, but overall, I really really like this. Toy Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Trial 4? Yeah, I'm a thumbs up. I, I sort of agree with Laura. I, I felt like the first maybe five episodes were really compelling. And then I think it, I, I feel like it slows way, way down. Yeah, so I, I give it a thumbs up and it, it's a very strong thumbs up for the first part. And then, you know, the last third, like, just serve a more lukewarm thumbs up. I just want to give a shout out to not only our Boston Globe reporters featured in this documentary, but so is excellent investigative reporter Philip Martin from my sister public radio station, WGBH in Boston. It was very nice to see public radio represented in one of these documentaries. Kevin, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Trial 4 on Netflix? Oh, I'm thumbs up for public radio, Rebecca. <laughs> Look, I'm thumbs up on this. I think it's it's uh, really great. By the way, I, I dig the animation as yeah, a way me too. to do the recreations. Um, this is like the second, second thing in a row that there's been animation it, in But it. it was also like really good. Yeah. It was really good animation. Um, yeah, look, I think it's a an interesting case that isn't afraid to tackle race and the institutions of law enforcement, whether it's in the city of Boston or uh, writ large. You know, this kind of thing happens all over the U.S., unfortunately. And, and to think about the many convenient suspects that were, you know, made patsies in order to close a case or to push suspicion towards someplace else. So this is something that, yeah, I would watch it a second time. I think that it's uh, it's really that good. I liked Trial 4 more than I liked pretty much everything else we've watched this year. I loved this documentary. I don't have the same issues you guys did with the pacing because I needed that break. I think it's episode six that really gets into the politics. I needed the break. Episodes one through five, I was in the edge of my seat. It was super intense. Rosemary Scarpaccio had me like slapping me in the face with justice. And I actually needed emotionally an episode that sort of took me out of the case for a few minutes and gave me some background because I, I think I think the pacing really worked there. And it also really put Boston in the spotlight as a character. I mean, Boston is another character in this story. Cities in general are a character, but Boston in particular. And I don't know. I think Trial 4 is the best thing on Netflix right now. I've been telling everybody I know to watch it. I think it's a masterpiece. I think it compares favorably with the first season, the first original episodes of The Staircase in its internal look at a defense. I loved almost everything about this documentary. I could not give it a more enthusiastic thumbs up. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Walmart Plus members save on Meeting Up With Friends. 
Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. All right, Kevin, here we are in the business section of the podcast. It's business time. That's not how the song goes. You know how it goes. Oh, ready? Yeah, there you go. So, Kevin, what is going on right now on our Patreon for everyone who supports us at patreon.com slash partners in crime media? In your feed right now is the Crime Writers on After Show. What are we talking about? We haven't talked about it yet, so I don't know. Yeah, we're talking about, we're going to excuse Toby because we haven't watched it, <laughs> but we're going to talk about The Crown. And I think we got to talk a little more about Laura Bricker, Pet Detective. Yes, we do. <laughs> we have a new episode of... Married with Podcast. Mm. We take a whole bunch of questions. It's a good episode. Uh, including a question about uh, someone's mom who won't keep secrets. That's right. Indiscreet mama. Yes. And a, and a listener who has not been feeling well and just can't understand why her boyfriend can't get it in his head that she doesn't want to... Do it. it yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. She needs to kick him in the, you know, what's. Yeah, it was a really good episode of Married with Podcast. Married with Podcast, by the way, is a really good show, and you will be able to hear it, many episodes of it, like 50 episodes of it or so, if you subscribe to our Patreon, right? Yeah, well, we've got over 150 episodes, exclusive episodes on Patreon, and they also include the upcoming Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club, which will be out before we uh, come out with another Crime Writers on episode. Toby's talking about The Big Goodbye, which is all about uh, Chinatown, the movie Chinatown, and old Hollywood, or the end of Hollywood. I love Chinatown. Or Hollywood as we used to know. I don't know. I didn't read the book, Toby. It's, yeah, it's just about, it's about the making of Chinatown and how that happened right as big changes were being made in the movie industry. The sort of the thesis of the book is that sort of the craft, these sort of idiosyncratic, but, you know, great movies are becoming a thing of the past and are being replaced by sort of blockbusters the way we think of them. So it, it's it's good. It's super interesting. A lot of interesting characters. I actually watched Chinatown last night to yes. get ready for, uh, for the conversation. And it holds up. Yes. If you haven't watched it recently, the only thing that doesn't hold up is the soundtrack is a little... A little weird. Yeah, but, you know, uh, you know what's amazing. It's funny. I don't know we're still in the business section, but you're talking about sort of like the um, the quirkiness of Chinatown and the weirdness before the blockbuster. One of the things I remember so much about that movie is that Faye Dunaway has like pit stains like in her blouse like during the film and it's like you don't remember the knife up the nose well no, I remember that too <laughs> and I remember of course her weird teeth but like you would never see that Lily was hot when they were filming she was sweating she sweat through her blouse and like they didn't make her change like that was just in the movie because in California like that's what it would look like it's Chinatown Rebecca I don't know I, I love love Chinatown all right, Kevin, uh, we've talked about all the stuff we've got going on on Patreon, but quick question. Do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Our Patreon patron saints are Alyssa Dousman 
and Bliss Peterson. Shorten Begara. <laughs> Wait, isn't Alyssa the yoga loft above the bodega? Yes, she is. Alyssa is our like naming rights patron. She is the proprietor of the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi. We have one level. By the way, you know who lives down the street from her? Who? James Carvel. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, I was like, I've seen him on that TV. That old bunch. man. Yeah. That guy, like, <laughs> my son was like, I was watching CNN, and there's some old guy with like a half a bottle of whiskey behind him, and yes. he's wearing like some like dirty sweatshirt. Yes. And I was like, I think that might have been James Carvel. James Carvel <laughs> today looks like James Carville got turned into a raisin. And then we have like raisin James Carville. (laughs) It's like someone put James Carville in the microwave for 30 seconds. Someone put him in the dehydrator. Someone put him in the Instapot. (laughs) what we have. (laughs) So just so you know, for our listeners, Alyssa has been, we have one spot in this one level in our Patreon. And that one spot, that person is allowed to have the Naming Rights Store Studio She's been doing it for, like, years. Yeah. She's been supporting us more than any other patron for years. She's probably like, how come you haven't made me patron saint yet? <laughs> it's like, I want to move it around a little bit, but, you know, it's uh, <laughs> it's kind of hard not to do you. All right, Kevin, are we done with the business section? We are. All right, Stop let's that music. fade out that music, shall we? Moving on. Girls do not play chess. That one moves up and down, or back and forth, all the way if there's space to move in. But that one can only go up. That tall one can go any way it wants. A girl living in an orphanage is fed a diet of Christian education and daily tranquilizers until she learns to play chess from a janitor. Beth Harmon turns He's out to be... <laughs> Beth Harmon... He's a custodian. They Rebecca's call him a, a janitor in the thing. Beth Harmon turns out to be a prodigy, quickly climbing the ranks in a sport dominated by men. What's the prize for beginners? 20. What about the other section? First prize in the open is 100. Is it against any rule for me to be in the open? Not exactly. Put me in the open. Beth focuses on beating the Cold War Soviet grandmasters, but the cocktail of pills and alcohol that fuel her strategic vision threatened to take over her life. You should be by yourself. You know what happens. Maybe that's what I want. Want to get drunk. Yeah. Getting drunk. Fucking bombed. And maybe high too. Why not? Starring Anya Taylor-Joy as Beth, the seven-part series The Queen's Gambit is a period drama about addiction, genius, feminism, communism, and lots of chess. Can our heroine conquer her demons before she conquers the Russian great standing in her way? Now, we are going to be talking about plot points for The Queen's Gambit, so to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs-up or thumbs-down review. Kevin, why are we reviewing the show? It's not true crime. It's a big hit. Everyone, <laughs> everybody on Facebook is asking, "Will you review I this?" Know. It's pop culture. I know. So that's that was a fake question. It's a real question. Yeah. This documentary is it about chess or is it about addiction or is it about something else? Well, it's a character study, I think. Mm. And it's yeah, it's about addiction and a, and a woman coming into her own and, if I might be so symbolic, finding her way from being a pawn to a queen. <laughs> Okay. Laura, this is a film that has a sport at its center. The sport of kings. Chess. 
I know it's your favorite sport. Horse racing is a sport. Oh, of damn it. Right. I, I thought it was falconry. Yes. But Laura Bricker, chess is at the center of this. And one of the things that occurs to me talking about it, watching it, is that we watch an awful lot of people moving pieces around a board in this film. What do you think of that? Well, you know, it's funny. Like, who thought chess could be so exciting? Honestly, like the suspense. Nerds did. <laughs> Well, no, Kevin, I had a chess phase. I did have a chess phase. I'm sure we did. We all have that phase. Yes. Yes. And I got the chess board and I played and then I was like, this is just hurts my brain too much. I can't play chess anymore. But watching this, especially combined with Anya Taylor-Joy's facial expressions and her eyes and her little smirks made watching chess so suspenseful and exciting because you could just see the level of strategy that was involved in the way that they dragged out the game. And I was just like, <gasps> the whole time. And and I'm like, I can't believe, is this what my life has come to in the pandemic, that chess is exciting? But clearly it is. Now, I, before I go to Toby, Kevin, I want you to talk about something that you talked about when we were watching this, What's which that? is the choreography oh, of those yeah. scenes, which I, I didn't even think about, but it's super interesting to think about. Yeah, because apparently all the chess um, moves and everything like that are accurate. In fact, the different games that they play within the movie are actual games that were played by very famous chess players. So when they're when they move a rook to the square, it's been done before. But it, especially like in the speed chess, mm. it reminds me very much of like fight choreography, where you, you know, the actors know I'm going to throw this punch with the left. You're going to block it like this to move it all around. I thought it was really fascinating, and it creates a level of authenticity that we need in a hyper real, not at all authentic movie let's talk about this i mean it's not like it's fantastical in many ways it's an alternate history if you want to say it like it's that. an alternate yeah. history but it's also sort of has this fantastical kind of like fairy tale telling to it and and toby that sort of begins at the beginning when beth becomes orphaned and she's sent to an orphanage which, by the way, I will give the writers a lot of credit, and I know this was a book originally, so it's not just the TV writers, for not doing all the cliche shit that we expect in this orphanage. And honestly, throughout the entire uh, series, there's a lot of cliche stuff that I expect to happen that doesn't happen. You know, you expect when a kid goes to an orphanage that looks like this orphanage looks like there's going to be like sexual abuse or or abuse and there's going to be, you know, unkind, you know, dogma. Yeah. yeah. But it isn't really that. It's just an orphanage. And we get a bunch of surprising scenes Instead, they do tranquilizers. They do tranquilizers. Oh, my God. Toby, I mean, I know that you have problems with this uh, series because I saw your notes. But tell me what you thought of that scene when Beth breaks into dispensary and we think she's just going to put some pills in her pocket and instead she reaches into the jar, grabs a fistful of them and shoves them into her mouth. Did you find that as surprising as I did, Toby? Yeah. Have you seen that that thing on YouTube where they show uh, that cat who just like, instead of eating like cats normally eat, where they just take a little piece and they like crunch it up. So he like opens its mouth as wide as it can and just like scoops up all this cat food. It was kind of like that. But uh, yeah, that was. I mean, there, there's a lot of good scenes in this. A hundred percent. And that was one of them. I, I don't know. I, that scene played really well on a whole bunch of different ways, I thought, and that it was somewhat suspenseful. And it also got the right, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think there's a bunch of places where they kind of got the right balance of very smart, but also a little kid hmm. and being able to figure things out, but not really understanding. Mm. And, and they do that several times, but I think that, that was the best example of it. It also continued all the Christ imagery connected with the character. 
Right. I think, Toby, that there is some Christ analogies here with the character. Um, she has, you know, a mysterious parentage. She is, um, you know... It's like the hero in any ma- story. Hero. Well, yeah, but she also has, for lack of a better term, magical powers. And then we see her dying and coming back to life in, metaf- in, in different ways over and over again. Yeah. Including in the last scene when she sacrifices her queen in order for this very complicated move. Like, we'll talk about that later. Yeah. Well, I do want to, like, turn to the other big theme of the series, which is addiction. And it plays out with a lot of characters. Uh, we have her as Beth as a little girl in the orphanage becoming addicted to pills. We have her being adopted by these very complicated parents, and in particular, uh, her adoptive mother, who is an alcoholic that's telegraphed early and often. <coughs> Do you ever think maybe it's the drinking that's making you sick? Oh, please. I've flirted with alcohol most of my life. If anything, I think it's high time I consummated the relationship. In contrast, I'm curious what you think, uh, Lara and Toby. In contrast to the way that Beth's relationship with alcohol is played out in the series, I think the mother's relationship with alcohol is actually done well, and it actually feels contemporary and it feels relevant to me. What did you think, Laura? Yeah, because I think that the mother is really portrayed as what, you know, you call like a functioning alcoholic or, you know, she's not somebody that you're seeing get to this like blackout roll around sort of stage. She's kind of a maintenance drinker. You know, I did think it was interesting that only the women seem to be portrayed as like alcoholics and having addictions in this show. Yeah. Um, and I, I was wondering if that's sort of like a sign of the times or sort of stereotyping that, you know, women at home and then this is how they're coping with things. But, you know, I think that the mother definitely came across to me as sympathetic as she went on because she became invested in Beth's chess career. But she clearly still struggled with her own reliance on, you know, you see her on the plane and she's like, tap and get me another one. Um, We're in the restaurant. And even when she, you know, offers Beth that first drink, it was portrayed differently because like when you see Beth, you see Beth going to the level where she is saving her pills. So she's not like, maintaining she's like saving them for the big high because she perceives in the beginning that that's the only way that she can see these chess moves on the ceiling when she's Mm. at that particular stage so it seems like you know she feels like she can't function without those pills i feel like like she feels like her genius is because of those when actually her genius was there all along do you know what i mean yeah and that's not an atypical sort of like artist story. But Toby, what did you think about the alcohol plot? Because I know you had some issues with it. You know, the whole, the alcohol plot, I thought was pretty lazy. I I, I just, it almost just kind of felt like it was, you just seen it again and again and again. It's the same thing. It's, you know, something happens. She hits rock bottom. A friend from the past comes and kind of pulls her up. And then she pulls her shit together and goes and, and, and conquers the world. But it doesn't play out in any way that is in any way unpredictable or has a whole lot of resonance in the rest of the plot, to be quite honest. There's a whole section there where it's like, what does this mean? Like, yeah. why are we why are we watching this? How is this advancing the plot in any way? I thought a more interesting sort of substance abuse thing was what Laura was just talking about, which is that she takes 
these pills and then they help her focus and, and sort of see the chess moves and, and you know, I, I, that's hallucinate a, a basically hallucinating well, chess pieces on the ceiling. <laughs> well, I guess, I mean, if you're taking it literally, I couldn't tell if you're supposed to take it literally or is it just, that's a metaphor for her being able to like have clarity of thought mm. about chess. But I mean, regardless, like even when she's drinking herself into blackouts all the time, there's no sense that she's actually an addict. She just drinks way too much. There's no, you don't see her going through withdrawal right. or really even struggling with it. I mean, she just kind of pulls herself together and and goes to, to Russia and wins. Like yeah. there's no, and it's the same thing with the pills. Like you never see her in withdrawal from the pills or like desperate to get her pills. I mean, she- Just she when goes she was and, 10. Yeah. Yeah, but she, could, but she shows up and then, oh, like my mom's got them and I can just steal some from her. And so it keeps going. And- you know, I think there's there's something interesting there about, you know, how dependent upon those drugs is she actually? Like, is it is it a psychological dependence or does it really help her? Because when you're that young and that's helping you, to me, you know, I think it's a big leap to say they're not actually helpful, that that's a psychological dependence. So at the end, when she like flushes them all down the toilet and, you know, then goes ahead and, and beats the guys the best in the world... It seemed a little bit too pat to me, mm. and it seemed like they were kind of shying away from the real implications of what was going on there. And if if the whole thing was that it was just a crutch for her, isn't there some kind of negative to throwing away the crutch at the one time when you most need it? Yeah. And the answer in this is no. She just shows up and like fucking kicks ass, and it's like <laughs> she never... She never needed them in the first place. So I, I don't know. All that stuff seemed, you know, I hate to say not thought through very well, but it just didn't seem. It wasn't believable. Yeah, it wasn't believable. It didn't exploit the possibilities for how it could have been interesting. It was just like, oh, okay, well, we got to go through the drug. You got to do through the thing where she's going to be a drunk, but you know, she'll pull it together at the end. I'm sure it's not going to end like this. Kevin, I'm curious what you think about Beth's relationship with all the men that sort of play varying roles in her life. We've got mentors. You mean different pawns? Competitors. That she's willing to sacrifice in order to <laughs> continue her attack across I, the board I to her goal. Yeah. I get it. You've got some metaphors going on. There's a lot of symbolism in this if you look for but, it. But first we have Bill Camp as Mr. Scheibel. Love Bill Camp, by I the way. No, We last saw him uh, most prominently in The, the Night of. Of. Yes, we've seen him in so many things. Yeah. And he's married to, of course, Elizabeth Marvel, right. great actress who's in so many things. But then we also have... A, By the way, today a girl could not be alone in a basement with a custodian for hours on end true. without somebody looking into that. True. We have the men who admire her from afar, like the Russian champ, uh, Vasily Borgov, who's very intimidated by her yet plans to beat her in a very strategic way. We have, of course, Benny, played by the kid from Love Actually. I know. Why can't he grow a mustache? Thomas, Isn't he grown up now? Thomas Brody Sangster <laughs> wearing Indiana Jones costume throughout the documentary. And apparently the only good sex she ever has. Uh, we have Henry, the former champ. Uh, we have the twins. Dudley you know, Dursley. Yes, that's right. That's right. That's Henry, right? Is Dursley. Yep. So basically what happened throughout the the series is that these men play the the alternating roles of mentor or foil, like mentor, foil, mentor, foil, mentor, foil. And she sort of, you know, they, they have varying degrees of importance and usually she ends up sort of overtaking them. But at the end, and this is what I think is really interesting, 
with the theme of communism in mind and what she learns from the Russians is they become her team. She sort of is like rallying the troops. Is the the lesson communism or is it teamwork? It's Well, that's how the Russians do it, Kevin. It's communism. Yeah, they team up. They support one another. It's communism. As as she has learned that you cannot go it alone all the time. This is the lesson she learns from the little boy that she plays in the best game of her life up to that point. Yeah. He teaches her. That they do it that way. Okay, if you want to, see, if you see communism, anyway, who am I to say there's not, it's not about think? communism? But her, like the dreamy guy, shows up to be her second. Like that's just an accepted thing. Is that you don't, like you do have help. Yes. Yeah, it's not cheating or anything. But she, it's yeah, not it's, cheating. It's, but she's but a, there's so much about her that changes at the end. Well, let me just that's like important. Let yeah. me just like put a nail on this and explain All to right. you why I feel this way. All right. There's a theme in this film about American exceptionalism versus communism. Where in the United States, you have like the stars, right? And Beth is competing. She's traveling around. And there isn't a sense of like, you know, you get help from other people. We're all equal. You go, you win, you take the next thing. And we see that in Russia, you become a champion with lots of help. We see those guys standing around in that hotel ballroom playing Beth's game, all talking to each other about how to beat her, even though she's playing multiple guys and they're all in that room together. Okay, well, let's start with his knight to rook four. We push that king knight pawn. You got that? Yes. Great. We'll pass you back to Harry. Okay, there are three things you might do now. So after the queen to knight three, you play knight to king six. And then it's not about exceptionalism because they agree you're the champ. And then at some point you're not the champ anymore. And it's someone else's turn to be the champ. That's where I land on the, on the themes of American exceptionalism versus communism. Laura, what do you think? Well, see, I saw it differently. I saw it that, you know, having been an orphan, her pa- you know, her mother gets in the, in the car crash and dies. She goes to the orphanage. She's been on her own. And as a child that grew up, you know, basically making her own way, you know, she had to do everything for herself. So I think for me, I saw it as when she finally realizes that she has people that are going to be there for her and not abandon her, as her parents did in this group of sort of misfit chess helpers. And when she recognizes that, oh, it's okay, the other people work together, it was like she finally came to this place where she was able to take help and it wasn't a sign of weakness and it was something that you know she hadn't been able to do until that point because she had really been on her own. Toby, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I, I guess a couple of things is one is like when you're talking before about American individualism versus communist cronyism, you know, part of it is that this is this is based on very, very loosely but the concept, and, and I think the author has talked about it, is based on Bobby Fischer, hmm. who was, you know, similar, sort of an iconoclastic American prodigy who went up against Boris Spassky, who was the best of this Soviet machine. Of The way it played out was a lot different, although Fischer won and was actually a genuinely disturbed and eventually super unpleasant guy. It's a little bit hard to figure out for me because in some ways it just seemed like a feel-good ending where, you know, all these people who were sort of at one time rivals and then in a couple of cases lovers and then like certainly sort of inferiors to her and her uh, coming to the point where she can accept that support. And, you know, it's not really humility. My kind of take on it was that she sees this guy, Borgov, who's the best he he sees some value in listening to his inferiors and and she does that too 
So I don't know. I, I, I thought about that some, and then I also just thought, well, maybe this is just a feel good thing. Like, <laughs> it's fun to have all these people who you've seen like strewn out along the, the course of these episodes, you know, she starts off with the twins and then, uh, you know, the Kentucky state champion and, and stuff. And to see them all like helping around and then jumping around and high-fiving each other and stuff like that. I think there's sort of a cathartic end and also sort of plays into what you were saying, which is like, it's not like completely realistic. Like, I don't think you're supposed to look at it as being, this could have actually happened. You know, there's just, there's sort of a dreamlike quality to quite a bit of it. You know, there are, there are some shows that we as the audience um, might not be 100% familiar with the skill that's going on. Like, we may not know an awful lot about chess or soccer or ballroom dancing or whatever. But it's because part of the, the process, the hero's journey, is learning the skill. We learn it too. But it, it's, we, we are drawn not by the, the game but by the human drama of the pursuit. So the realism believes of, you know, a very authentic world for us. And I think that one of the things I wanted to talk about, just to point out like all the different symbolism that is throughout visually throughout this. I mean, obviously it might've been a little heavy handed for her her first period at her first chess match. I mean, I think it's a little too much. Oh, you're a woman now. Wink, wink on the nose. I just wanted to tell you that I've never seen anything like, um, do, do you have something? It's my first time. Listen, I had my first period at my mother's wedding. What does that make you? Like, I, it happens. I get Shit it. Shit happens. happens. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but look, if you look at it, I mean, her couture is awesome, yeah. right? Uh, but when you look at it, there are checkerboard patterns and diamond patterns in the decor, all over the place, in her dresses, her her silhouette or her dresses, she's shaped like a like a, a queen's piece. It's there's a lot of two tone color, like a checkerboard would be. It's really well thought out. And the thing at the end that I, want, that I was mentioning was that in the, her last game, and you know all the all the different chess boards are, are different. The pieces are some are very fancy and some are very rugged. You 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 might remember that queen had a it was a, she was playing white and it had a black colored tip. Mm-hmm. It was the only piece. So it was it tells the audience this is important, and you know because it's the queen anyway. So her her she opens with the queen's gambit, which is a, a chess opening. What she does at the end to win is she does a very aggressive move where she sacrifices her queen, which is something, you know, she does a trade piece where she gives up her queen. But what she's actually doing when she makes that move is you see the next thing that she does is she moves her pawn all the way across to the back row where she gets a new queen, right? So when you put it together, she has gone full circle in her journey where she has discarded her old self and achieved a new uh, womanhood. Hmm. Lara, more superficially, can you just give me your one to ten ranking on the clothing, decor, and overall uh, set design and art direction of this amazingly beautiful series, The Queen's Gambit? Yeah, I'm going to go with 8.5 because <laughs> yeah. that was awesome. The clothes, the music. I've heard people tell me that the reason they started watching this is because they heard like the soundtrack on Spotify or something. And, um, you know, it was just Awesome. All of the period pieces. I that was I think the I think nostalgia. We just talked about the period piece. Oh, stop it. Okay. Yeah, the other the nostalgia of the era that this happened in. Besides Are You There God It's Me Margaret. <laughs> that was by the way a great menstruation scene when she's in the bathroom and she's just like asking the other girl like what do I do? 
so exactly on the nose in like many, many ways. Every woman watching this realizes. You don't think it was an extra level of uh, benign neglect from the parental figures in her No, she was in an orphanage. Yeah, that's what I mean. Bill Camp wasn't teaching her about pads in the basement. I, I were agreeing with one another. <laughs> All right, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know. Should they check out The Queen's Gambit on Netflix if they have not already? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up. This was, I mean, once I, I posted on social media that I had watched this, and it seemed like everybody in my orbit has watched this and loved this. Some of them have watched it twice. This was the most fun thing that I've watched in a long time. There was definitely a section, though, towards the middle where it did start to blend together. I'm like, we're at another tournament. The mom's drinking again. We're on another airplane. But you know what? In the end, it was all worth it. It was really interesting. It was really different than anything else I've watched. If you ever told me I'd be watching a chess show and be like on the edge of my seat wanting to know what happens next, I wouldn't believe it. Um, it was it was great. Tell you about what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for The Queen's Gambit on Netflix. So first of all, I, I want to endorse uh, Kevin's take on the end. I did not pick up on that at all, but I, I think that's right on. I thought that mm. was good. He Thank was watching you. carefully. I was watching carefully. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my advice for people, I'll give it a thumbs up. And, and, and after you watch it, go and listen to like a minute and a half ago and, and get Kevin's take on it because I thought it was good. Um, you know, I don't, I, I didn't love it as much as as some people did. I, I, I think the parts that are good are really, really good. And if it had been maybe two episodes shorter, and again, I don't want to give out much, but if you listen to before, and there's, there's some stuff I think that didn't really work and wasn't up to the quality of the rest of it. But that being said, you know, it's entertaining and there are parts of it that that are like well above most other shows. I, I give it a thumbs up with those caveats. Kevin Flynn. I'm a thumbs up. I think Joseph Campbell would really love this story because it follows his classic hero's journey. It's a story of a special woman who meets a uh, master who teaches her a skill and she sets off on a journey into a new world she goes down to the uh, the pits of despair, faces her challenges, and then rises up to achieve her goal and return to the normal world. But when did she find out that Darth Vader is her father? Well, you know, it's along <laughs> the way. Although that's a good question if we ever find out about the father. Look, anyway, you don't have to know anything about chess. Just be willing to go in and watch uh, this amazing actress. Move some pieces around. You don't have to know what a rook is or what the castling is all about. It's just fun to watch her on this journey. All right. So I love The Queen's Gambit. It's weird. It's imperfect. The performances are outstanding. We've talked a lot about Anya Taylor-Joy, but I also want to give a shout out to Isla Johnson, who plays young Beth Harmon, who is an incredible, incredible child actor. Um, This show is uneven. It's weird. It combines many things that could make it total garbage. It tries to do a whole lot with uh, a series of sort of strange, hyper-real scenes and hyper-real characters, hyper-real clothing, hyper-real competition, hyper-real travel. It doesn't matter. I loved it. Incredibly entertaining series, really compelling. And I love something that surprises me. And over and over again in The Queen's Gambit, there'd be a scene that I would think was going one way and then it would make a 180 degree turn and go a completely different way or just buck expectations in some other surprising way. So big thumbs up for me for The Queen's Gambit. I really can't recommend it highly enough. 
Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of of the the week. The FBI was hot on the tail of a Ponzi scheme mastermind, pinning him down on the shore of Lake Shasta in California. That's when Matthew Piercy pulled something from his truck, dove in and disappeared under the water. Officials say Piercy tried to get away on a sea scooter. It's a handheld submersible vehicle that helps divers chug along at a blistering four miles an hour. Agents stood on the shore watching a trail of bubbles and waited 25 minutes for their fugitive to resurface. Before his attempted escape in the mini submarine, authorities had called Piercy a, quote, flight risk. You think? He and his partner are accused of bilking $35 million from investors and face 20 years in prison. After a massive spending spree, prosecutors say almost none of the money is left, meaning everyone involved is, financially speaking, underwater. So, panel, here's my question for you. Evading arrest via handheld submarine sounds more like an escape the Joker or Lex Luthor would make. What other clues were there? This guy might be a supervillain. What do you think, Lara Bricker? Um, I don't know. The fact that his thing only went four miles an hour, I just don't even think he's close <laughs> to being a supervillain. All I can think of is that he is like that guy. Did you guys ever watch Phineas and Ferb? Yeah. <laughs> the no. guy who was I mean, a supervillain in that. Um, it was like Dr. Dufeldorf or something. Like that's about the level of supervillain. Oh my God. Phineas and Ferb. The same kid is in it. Ferb. <laughs> what the hell? Ferb is Thomas Brody Sangster from the, the Queen's kid, the Gambit. Kid from, the kid from oh. actually, who never grows up. <laughs> Apparently, Jeez. it was Ferb. <laughs> that kid's like Does Ferb have now. a weird mustache, too? <laughs> no. Oh, my God. Wow. Okay. Toby Ball, what other clues were there that this underwater submarine scooter guy might actually be a supervillain? Uh, he had some fancy pajamas underneath his clothes. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Kevin Flynn? Well, he spent all that money on that uh, hollowed out lair from the, uh, the on the island with the giant mountain, and he dug a hole in, and, yeah. he, and he had sharks with freaking lasers. Mm. Laser. I just want some freaking sharks with laser beams, people. You know how I know he's a supervillain? How? 
monologuing. Monologuing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We should probably end it on that note. But before we do, Lara Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? Oh, yes, we do. But first, we have two cats of the week this week. I would like to give a shout out to people that are joining my orange cat cult because it's growing. Nice. Um, my world dominance in orange cats is growing. So Deanna at Lemonberry32 just got Jam, a six-month-old kitten who was an adorable orange cat. Um, and also, I love it when we get these emails from people who send us pictures and give us a whole story. Leslie Henderson Craig, who wrote to us from New Zealand, which mm. is awesome. Um, Very far she away. She says, we are bloody fabulous, which... yes. Thank you. Thank you, Leslie. (laughs) Um, She's telling me about Mittens. It's not her cat, but he is a Wellington, New Zealand celebrity cat. Apparently, he like just wanders around and wanders in places. Um, He's a phenomenon. He's beloved by the city, covers a fair bit of territory, and causes big excitement when he decides to settle in your workplace car or home. And Hmm. so he has a whole Facebook page. You can follow his travels. And she took a picture because he visited her workplace, which is four levels up and is swipe card only access. And somehow he got in. So I have a question about your email from Leslie from New Zealand. Yes. Did she like send it tomorrow, but you got it yesterday? What? (laughs) That's what I always think whenever you were like, have you ever communicated with somebody like in Australia or New Zealand? It's like two days later when they're talking to you. (laughs) Well, it was actually sent in last week, and I saved it mm. for this week. So it sent no. in last week, but it was actually the week after she a- she actually meant to send it because they're <laughs> so time distorted there down under. Anyway, Leslie, thank you for writing in, and please tell your friends in New Zealand to listen to our podcast. We need some more Kiwi fans. All right, Lara Bricker, people want to send their submissions to you for Cat of the Week. Besides uh, meeting you on our Facebook discussion group, how can they find you on Twitter? At Lara Bricker. And Toby Ball, folks want to reach out to you and say, hey, Toby Ball, how can they find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball NH. Toby, I promise no one else will tell you that you bear a resemblance to that one photograph of John Mulligan ever again. You don't actually <laughs> look like him. You just look like that that one photo of him. I was trying to figure out what that was all about. But, oh, (laughs) I think I'll take care of that. (laughs) Kevin Flynn, if folks want to reach out to you and tell you to get a haircut, how can they find you on Twitter? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you to join our amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular old Facebook page, by the way. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You'll get the Crime Writers on After Show, Married with Podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, and Laura Bricker's Leave it to Bricker Podcast. Kevin, how many episodes are there behind our Patreon firewall? More than 150. So much content. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the very handsome Olivia Burdett. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement where we teach orphans how to play chess. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. Happy Thanksgiving. Lara Bricker, uh, this is a documentary that has a sport at its center. The sport it's not of a Kings. documentary. <laughs> I'm sorry. Laura, this is a series. You thought that, it was a documentary. No, I don't think it was. I, I, just, I used that word. I used they that had word. great access. I oh used God. that word wrong. So much color film for 1950. We were just talking about a documentary. All right, so yeah.
partners in Crime Media. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.